Right, so if you'll turn in your Bibles to Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 1 specifically, I'm going to go through uh, various uh, scriptures, uh, primarily in Genesis, so we won't be flipping around too much, uh, just as we think about God's created order, which is important. Uh, Anytime Jesus was ever asked about marriage, uh, what it is and what it isn't, he always went back to Genesis chapter 2 and says, from this point, uh, we see what God's intention is was. So that's why we're going to go there this morning as we look at the theology of baby making. And uh, it's okay if I hear babies, it's no problem because it's totally fitting with what we're talking about. All right. So uh, it's on you if you just don't feel comfortable, that's fine. Uh, And so uh, I remember very uh, specifically when, when the thought came to my mind that maybe Julie and I should have babies. Um, you know, obviously when you get married, you think it kind of crosses your mind at some point. Uh, it kind of usually leads, points it, itself that way. But it was after my grandmother passed away uh, in 1999. And I was just thinking, wow, the generation is starting to go. And I'm finding myself no longer in the bottom generation, the youngest generation. Now the older generation is leaving and it's just my parents and myself. And there's just this sense in my heart and mind that, Life needs to go, our family needs to go on, uh, and it wasn't long after that that we found ourselves expecting our, our first one. Uh, and so that was just how it was in my heart and mind, but when you read the scriptures, you're going to find there's much more to this. And so I want to ask that we just uh, uh, stand as we read together, especially Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 26, and uh, reading through verse 28. Just keep your Bibles open after we sit, and um, you'll find you'll be constantly going back. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You may be seated. What I just read, there is so much be gleaned from those three verses about life. But when we see this scripture, it lets us know that right from the beginning, children was a part of God's dream to glorify himself through creation. This creation is a reflection of God. Have you ever wondered if you see these these, uh, natural shows and sciences where you're you're studying the, the skies and the stars, and the suns, and you see how massive uh, the sun is compared to the earth, and then you realize that the sun is just one of smaller stars, and, and they're just, it just blows and staggers our thinking when you see how big space is. Have you ever thought, why? I mean, usually the impact of that is, man, I'm so small. I'm just a dust That you can barely see in the light of everything. Why is it so big? One of the reasons why it's so big is to show us how big God is. 
That he can create such things that staggers our brain in distances in space, and yet it was conceived by a word from God. And so when we see creation, it is meant, intended, to reveal God's glory from the uh, various of flowers, the scents, it's a, uh, the sights that we see, to the sunrises and the sunsets, to all the many things that we will see. But yet, none of them will compare to the glory of God that's filled within one human soul. Of how they're meant to reflect God's glory. You see, the Christian worldview is is one that says every human matters. Because every human reflects God's glory. They're made in His image. You see that God created man in His own image. God says, let us, which is a community, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he makes man with a need for community because it reflects himself. He makes man with a a tendency to create and produce and to work and to make beauty and to love. Have you ever asked yourself or told yourself, you know, I've had enough creative things. I have enough beautiful things in my life. I have had enough love in my life. Have you ever once said that? No. No. You see something beautiful and it makes an ache in your soul for more. You receive love and it has an ache in the soul for more. Why? Because God's made us in his image and we can't be satisfied with just his creation. These are just little fingerprints, but get this, guys. There will be a day where we will be satisfied. When we will see enough beauty, know enough love, be involved with enough creative work of art and and other productive things where we're like, yes, yes. And the beautiful thing about that is there is no end. This is what it means to be headed toward God and his glory, to be made for him. But part of God's dream is to create these people that are made in his image that reflect him, all right? And uh, not only in what we look like and how we perform, but our character as well to reflect the nature of God. And then he says to these people who reflect him, fill the earth. Why? Because everywhere God sees on earth, he wants to see himself. So he says to these people that are perfect in his reflection of Christ, the reflection of God, to say, just fill the earth, uh, multiply. Uh, everywhere you go, multiply, subdue the earth. In other words, now you have stewardship, you have ability, responsibility to exert your Christ-like, and it's totally fitting to say Christ-like because you're made in God's image. That was God's intent. And so the work of salvation is bringing us all the way back to how God first intended us. That's what Christ-likeness means and being sanctified, being set apart. Let the Holy Spirit work in us through Jesus Christ is bringing us back to God's original Intent, which why it says in Hebrews to the restore many sons to glory. All right, so that's the idea behind this. And so and when, when he says, don't just settle for one, don't just settle for two, reproduce, fill the earth, everywhere you go, let the world see God's glory through mankind. That's his dream. Now, is that arrogant? It seems like it's all about God's glory. I mean, all this is about God's glory. Well, look, it's only arrogant if you can't hold up to it. All right? So if I say, I want everyone here to look like me, which, by the way, I cut Evan's hair. It looks good, doesn't it? <laughs> I, sorry, Evan. Uh, I, it looks somewhat like mine, a little bit, you know? I, and so this is, this is like, well, you know, it, there's this little bit of us wanting to reproduce ourselves, but we're not worthy of being reproduced, are we? That's called arrogance, all right? <laughs> so... 
But if you're worth it, then reproducing it is just right. And that's what God is. And that he is, he says, this, I am the most beautiful, the most joyous, I am uh, the most complicated, most powerful one. There is nothing else that can uh, be like me, so let's reproduce my nature all around. So that's not arrogant. So when God created this world, he says, be fruitful, multiply. The theology of making babies was about giving glory to God, reproducing God's glory everywhere we go. So the thing is, what's happened now, though, is sin comes in. We see this in Genesis chapter 3. It messes up, mars the image of God within us. We're born broken. Uh, And so when we have children, they have the capacity... They have the capacity to know God because they're made in his image. But they no longer, from the get-go, reflect God's character. Now, it takes a work of God in their heart to change them, transform them from the inside out. And that's what we call salvation. That's what we call the working of God and making them Christ-like. And so, we pray now that when we have children to... Uh, when we're making babies, all right, we're making children, we're going to go with that and have prayers like we just prayed and say, God, may they one day be fulfilling the purpose for which you made them and that they will reflect your glory. So may they have a heart for the glory of God. What does that mean to have a heart for the glory of God? To be captured by God's glory, the uniqueness, the beauty, the fame, the amazing aspects of who God is that, that would capture your heart. And that they would start living for that. And not for their own. Okay? So, theology of making babies is, is first of all about the glory of God. Now, as we keep on reading, let's see how that works out. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 23 and 25. When God brings this and makes man, there's a real problem in that, well, man, though born with the desire for community, has no one to have community with. And in fact, takes them all through the animals and, uh, well, you know, there's nothing there that kind of strikes a chord with Adam. And this is part of Adam realizing this. And so God makes a woman out of the man using his bones. And so uh, at the sight of this woman, man is astounded. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 23 to 25, we get this statement. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So this passage is the passage that Jesus quotes and Paul quotes anytime marriage is brought up. When there's questions about, well, can divorce or remarriage happen? Uh, And uh, Matthew uh, chapter 19 and Mark chapter 10, Jesus quotes this passage uh, when uh, Paul is talking about how the Holy Spirit works in marriage, restoring us back to God's ideal. He references in Ephesians this passage in Genesis chapter 2. And so uh, it is the prototype of what God's ideal is for marriage. So God didn't address all the very um, variants that man would create for marriage. He just said, this is it. He didn't say, this is not it, this is not it, this is not it, this is not it. It's like if I, if I had a row of women up here, I wouldn't necessarily have to say, uh, that's not my wife, that's not my wife. That's not. I could just simply point to Julie and say, that's my wife. All the others are kind of figured out by that. And so, well, that's what we've got here, where God says, this is what marriage is. 
And he makes a man and he makes a woman. He makes one man and he makes one woman. And he doesn't create another woman later for Adam that's younger and more beautiful. All right? Um, You know, he doesn't create another man that's more powerful or more sensitive. He just, here you go. One man, one woman. This is the ideal. All the variants that man creates, it always goes back to this one Example, this prototype that God creates, and there's lessons in the prototype for us. Uh, so, but let me ask you, as you read this, how did man, Adam and Eve, know they were married? How did they know that, I mean, we have, we have ceremonies now. You know, we've got, we've got rings we wear. You know, you, you, you got some thousands of dollars you spend on a ceremony that says, okay, I know we're married now. My bank account shows it. Um, How did they know they were married? There was no minister. There's no repeating of vows given here. It's just God. And he says to man, here's a woman. Here's Eve. What do you think? And man is just, wow, this is the last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall become a woman. But you have, in verse 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. How do we know we're married? How did Adam and Eve know they were married? When this relationship was primary, everything else secondary, a commitment to that, and there was intimacy. There were one flesh all right so that's what's going to be my word today intimacy uh physical intimacy spiritual emotional intimacy in fact in case you have any questions about what are you talking about we'll notice the next verse and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed shame hadn't entered in because sin hadn't entered in all they know is god's love that has been fully embracing of them, so therefore nothing to be ashamed of before God nor of anyone else. But the allusion to this is a physical intimacy. So let me ask you this question. How does God know you're married today? Well, he said, well, I made a vow before God. Yeah. But even more is physical intimacy that happens. Now, as I say that, you need to understand there should be bells going off in your head. Because we do not live in a society that believes that or accepts that or teaches that, encourages it in any way whatsoever. You see, the sign of God's ideal marriage is intimacy. What we have taken, when when we say intimacy, we mean obviously physical intimacy, but also spiritual and emotional. That comes within a a boundary of saying, I will love you. I will commit myself to you. I will care for you for the rest of my days. We are one. And so every aspect of that is done within this boundary of a commitment with one another. So in asking Adam and Eve, how do you know you're married? Well... We were one. Okay. Interesting what man recognizes 
versus what God recognizes. When Jesus was challenged about this and divorced and about what marriage was and wasn't, and he had this statement that though you may have been divorced, if it wasn't for the grounds that God laid out, then what it is is adultery. And so what he is bringing out is God sees you with multiple partners. That's kind of a, in America, that, that freaks us out a little bit. In other countries, there's multiple spouses anyway, legal. You just need to ask yourself, what does the Bible teach as the sign of marriage? And it is, according to Genesis, intimacy, that they were one. As we understand in the physical aspects of it, there is one flesh that brings along a spiritual intimacy and emotional intimacy as well. Now here's the thing that this world has done. The world has said, there's nothing else connected to it, it's just pleasure. It just feels good. Feels right. And the thing about that is we've taken just the pleasure, divorced it from the spiritual and the emotional and the theological. And now we're selling it, we're uh, using it to sell because now it's just a promotion tool. I'm going to associate this product with something that feels good. And so now it's been used to sell hair. And anything else totally unrelated because we're associating good feelings with this product. And in the process, we are cheapening what God has intended in the physical intimacy of marriage. Because we no longer see the spiritual and the emotional connections that God has built within it. And so, the sign of God's ideal marriage is intimacy. Now see, ideal... The problem that we live in is that we live in a world that's not ideal. Because sin has marred it. Sin has marred the relationship with one another. So, let's keep on reading here. How did it impact baby making? Sin. Well, Genesis 3, verse 15 and 16. uh, God is laying down the consequences. Verse 15, he's speaking to... Uh, the serpent, the Satan, the enemy. Uh, he doesn't ask any questions of the enemy. He just says, this is what's going to happen. Whereas he asks questions of Eve and Adam. And this, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So basically he lays out the first prediction of the Messiah. And I love the fact that it came right after sin. He says, okay, this is what happened. You think it's derailed my whole creation plan of God's glory be given to me. But I was aware of it. I know about it. I've got a prophecy. I'm going to lay it out right here as soon as you get this this message of sin. You will have a seed, Eve. You will have a child. And there will be someone who comes from you that will destroy, give a mortal wound to the enemy. But then he'll do it by being wounded himself. And so that's the prophecy of Jesus and what will happen. Uh, And so he says to Eve, your salvation and the salvation of all mankind is going to come through childbirth. Which is why Paul brings what he does out in 1 Timothy 
uh, chapter 2. It's going to come through this. But then, he says, but that's going to be messed up too. Um, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. So, your hope, the only hope we've got is going to come through a very painful experience for you. Multiplied by every child that's born. That will happen. And so some of you have sat through that room, uh, or been through that experience. You can see the pain, or you know the pain. My wife tried to share the pain with me a little bit by pulling my hair in the process of her last one. It uh, didn't quite meet up to what she was dealing with. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> just grab whatever you can. So this, this childbirth now is a, a painful thing uh, that is uh, bringing out the impact of sin in our life. But then, he says, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Let me just share, that's not a good thing. All right, this is a consequence of sin. The desire for your husband is not saying that you're going to be longing for a husband. That's not the, the, the point there. In fact, that's a unique word, desire. And the only other place we really see it is in the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 7, when God's warning came saying that sin wants to master sin. He says, sin, his desire is for you, and his sin is crouching at the door to overtake you. And so, and that next chapter uses that same word to talk about someone who's longing to master someone. And so that same word is being applied here, that now the, the harmony between men and women is going to be fundamentally impacted for bad, and that women will be dealing with men, and they will long to master over uh, the will of the man, and they will do it through various manners and, and, and methods. But then he says, but the man shall rule over her. And that's not good either. Up to this point, it was a, a guiding, loving, caring, sacrificing, leading of a man. But now it is more of an overruling, domineering aspect of the man. And, and so this is the birth of feminism and chauvinism and all that that comes right here as a product of sin. Are y'all married? Y'all know this? You experienced this? Alright, we're not talking in theory anymore. This is stuff where we're interacting with this. Uh, so this is now messed up. But yet in this relationship, children come. Because you see, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So here I would just bring out to you that children are God's gift to the act of intimacy. Despite how we're fundamentally flawed between men and women in this relationship, it's still needed because we have to have children because that is where salvation comes, where glory of God can still be found. And the sign are, are when children are born is God's gift to the act of intimacy. Now, a lot of times we think that children are what unify us. And that's just wrong. Children will not unify you. In fact, they will divide you. (laughs) Children are a product of your intimacy. Now, what's, you know, the scientists, the biologists will tell us that 
uh, when you make a child, 10 chromosomes come from one man, 10 chromosomes come from the woman. They make 20 chromosomes. Of those chromosomes, it makes the hair color, eye color, the size of skin tone, all that kind of stuff. And they're one human being. Amazing. 10 from the woman, 10 from the man. The cells made up by both the man and the woman. They are a combination of your blood and DNA. That is a symbol to you. It is a sign to you that God has indeed seen you and that partner as one. If there's any question, check out the, the blood of your child. God sees you as one, and what comes from you is a combination of both of you. And it's a puzzle sometimes, because I, I remember the first one being born, blonde, blue eyes. I thought, like, well, that's kind of strange. Second one, blonde, blue eyes. I thought, well, third one, blonde, blue eyes. What's going on? Fourth one, brown. Thought, okay, I guess we'll stop. <laughs> no, that wasn't the reason why. Uh, but it's just how God can use the DNA. But one of the things, we get this backwards. We think that the children is what unify is that they do not. It is a symbol of the intimacy that God has brought together. How he's made you. So when you see these little children, it is just symbols of intimacy. And they're God's gift to us. Now, we keep on reading, and, and, and we can be discouraged by this because there's some of us that are not married, or we, we don't have children. And we're thinking, great, I'm not a fundamental part of society? No. Let me go on and bring this. So, so far, children are part of God's dream to glorify himself through creation. The sign of God's ideal marriage is intimacy. That is what God recognizes as one you're one. Children are God's gift to the act of intimacy. But the family mandate to glorify God, all right, that's what we've got so far. The family mandate to glorify God is superseded by the missionary mandate to glorify God. All right, now, here's how that works. I remember it being in, in seminary and us theologians, we're budding theologians trying to figure this out. And at the same time, we're in our 20s and we're married. And so inevitably it happens, we start asking, well, what's the theology behind birth control? And there were some troubling conclusions that people would make from time to time. Um, and you're familiar, uh, it's, and, and it's, not, I wouldn't say trouble, but there's a variety of conclusions that people make. We come with this idea that God's uh, gift, our children, we see them as blessings and, and that they are influential in society as a way to make disciples for the Lord. And we've got all this, but then someone would come up with this thought, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't practice birth control. So that's where the troubling people would come in. Like, oh my goodness, you know. Um, I had dear friends, good friends, and this is the conclusion they've come to, and it's fine. The part of this is a, a personal um, conviction of God's working in your heart. And so I don't want to belittle that because that is an aspect where you take this to the Lord and say, God, what would you want for me and our family? And I think that, that too many times we don't pray about it. We don't talk about it. We just settle with what's convenient. 
But I would bring this to your conclusion, to your thoughts. And this is that this family mandate to glorify God is superseded by a missionary mandate to glorify God. Let me explain that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul starts making some interesting uh, conclusions and observations. He's talking about marriage. He's talking about what Jesus taught about divorce and remarriage and how they fit in. Uh, Then he starts adding on to cases that Jesus didn't address when believers are married to unbelievers and divorce and remarriage and what that looks like. But he has this, this theme that he has bringing out throughout the whole chapter. Uh, at one point, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7, Now as concession, now to command, I say this, I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And at this point, Paul is saying, I'm not married. I wish that there were many that were like me. I wish that all were as myself am. I wish that all were not married like me. And thinking, Paul, really? Um, and then he's, he kind of speaks to our, our own sensitivities at that point and helps us understand. Uh, but then you see later on, uh, verse uh, 38, 40. Uh, so then who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. What's he talking about? Paul's talking about this uh, freedom to worship God, to love God, and make disciples. This freedom to go from place to place and make disciples for the Lord. And so what he's bringing out is that, yes, God has given us this mandate to have a family and to multiply and to glorify God through the reproduction of children. But now the New Testament has come, Jesus has come, and given us a way to make disciples as well. And Paul is saying, look, this takes precedence over the family mandate, and that is that all of your life is be used to make disciples to glorify God. So if in that pursuit you find that it's not convenient or it's not helpful to be married or to have children, then go with it. That's what I mean the missionary mandate supersedes the family mandate. What does that mean for us? Well, there is a branch of Christian thought that says birth control is taking things out of God's hands. Something to think about. But I would just temper that with, but understand, missionary mandate takes precedence to over how many children I have. So what that does factor in is that the deciding factor as to how many kids I have and don't have isn't necessarily my lifestyle of comfort. But it is my lifestyle of making disciples. Because God has called us to glorify Him. And so this is a plea for us to make that the pursuit of our life. Used to be that all we had to do was make kids. And they would grow up and look like Christ, act like Christ, and glorify God. But I found that my children aren't born that way anymore. They instinctively do other than that like I do. And I need someone and my children need someone that will show them what it means to follow Christ. And the joy of the Lord in following Christ. And it may be that I need someone that can move and come and be a part of their life. And I will praise God for that one because I'm not reproducing God glorifying children anymore. 
and neither is anyone else. And there must be now a people who are called by God, loved by God, who knows the love of God, has the Holy Spirit in their life that will go wherever they go, work wherever work they're doing, have children with whatever children they're having, but in the process understand that the greatest goal is to glorify God by sharing about Jesus and showing Jesus. So the theology of making babies goes under the theology of making disciples. And so we can make babies. But the question is, will we pray and ask God to make followers of Jesus Christ? And that's the prayer. And that's where a parent needs a community that God has made to help love and forgive and teach and disciple. And that's the church. And we want to see more churches made. More families made. For the glory of God. And that. Is the theology. Of making the babies. It's still about God's glory. Let's pray.